You're listening to Life with Impact. Join us as we continue to rediscover the heart of Jesus together. Well, hello there, Impact. It's week three of our series called Pressure Points. I'm excited to share this message with you. Before I get into it, though, if you are watching this on Sunday morning, the 29th of August, that's this coming Sunday, you still have time to join us for our river baptism. So if you're watching this on, on Sunday morning, then you can still head, get ready, go shower, and then head to Discovery Park where we are going to be baptizing quite a few people today. As of now, on Tuesday, there's at least 10 people that are following the Lord in baptism that will be with us down at the river at Discovery Park. Also, while we're there, we're going to have a picnic, like a church-wide picnic. So we will provide hamburgers and hot dogs, and we're asking if your last name is A through L, bring a side. If your last name is M through Z, uh, bring a dessert. If you don't have time to do any of those and you can't do that or you don't want to do that, come anyways. We would love for you to be there with us as one big church family down at Discovery Park today. It's a family picnic and a river baptism. All right, so so week three of Pressure Points. We called it Pressure Points. It's a study on the book of James, and the reason we called it Pressure Points is like acupuncture or massage therapy or like you just trying to knock somebody out. If you hit the right spot, it does a, a, a uniquely and almost weirdly different kind of work. So the reason massage therapy works is that you find these spots where stress builds up or where muscles get tense and you begin to break those things up and it makes a difference throughout the entire body. Same with acupuncture. And the book of James is just riddled with these really deep truths about understanding our, our opportunity and our responsibility in our walk of faith, this walk with Jesus. And so I, I'm excited. I, I mentioned last week or two weeks ago, and then Kevin shared this past weekend, both of us have said this is an in-depth verse-by-verse study. The book is chock full of so many amazing things. We'd be doing this study till like mid-2025 if we tried to pull out every truth. Instead, it's a five-week series because there's five chapters. And each teaching pastor will just read the chapter that lines up with their week and pull out a truth that resonates with them. So for me, I'm going with wisdom. And so I'm going to start with just reading right here in James chapter 3 because it's week 3. Let me encourage you like I encouraged you on week 1. These are short chapters and there's so much in each chapter. I hope you read chapter 1 in week 1. I hope you read chapter 2 sometime during week 2. And I hope this week you'll read chapter 3 sometime in this week because this is just one part. Actually, for as a sidebar, the, what, 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 what prompted me to do this study on the book of James is whenever I, in that church poisoning series, I did a message on the power of our tongue and the power of our words. And so in the early part of chapter 3, it's all about the power of our words, the, the reality of how we can't, we can't say we're, little, we're followers of Christ. We're Christians, and Christian, the word just means little Christ. And so we can't say that we align ourselves to Christ. It's, and then have have gossipy, lying, backbiting words come out of our mouth. That's salt water and fresh water coming out of the same pond, if you remember that message. So that's chapter 3. There's a lot of good stuff there, but I'm skipping that stuff because we kind of hit that early on. And I'm reading in James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. So again, I'm going to read a handful of verses. Just kind of bear with me. Verse 13 of James chapter 3. If you are wise and you understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good work, 
with the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up truth with boasting and lying. In verse 15, for jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. I'm going to read that again. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Verse 15 goes on to say, such things are earthly, unspiritual, get this, even demonic. Can you get that? Jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Those things are not only earthly, not only unspiritual, but demonic. They have the power of hell wrapped up within them. Verse 16 says, For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. A couple more verses in verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism, and it is always sincere. Finally, verse 18. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace, and they will reap a harvest of righteousness. I'm going to go ahead and pray for us real quick. God, right now, wherever... The, the individuals watching this or watching from, uh, maybe they're listening on, on Spotify or, or, or Apple or, or podcasts. God, maybe they're watching on the TV in the living room. Father, maybe they've broken this up a whole bunch. And so wherever we find them, first off, thank you for the power of technology. I, I bet you Paul, I bet you James, and we'll read some from James, we'll read some from Paul, we'll read, we'll read some from some of the, the prophets of old. I bet you they wish they had the capability we had just to, just to sh- open your word and share it. And for people all across the globe to have access to it. So, Father, right now, wherever these individuals are, my prayer is that you would meet them and, and just kind of stir this truth into their heart. Is, what, what does it mean to have godly wisdom? And how does that change our lives and our journey of faith when we understand it? In Jesus' name, amen. So, so I want, I want to first talk about um, this, this line that says prove it, right? In, in James chapter 3, verse 13, it says, if you are wise and you understand God's ways, he says, then prove it. Uh, there's a, there's a uh, I don't know if you guys watched the game Ellen. You know, Ellen Generous has that game show called Ellen's Game of Games. I forget the name of it. Yeah, it's called You Bet Your Wife. And if you've ever seen it, I, I would never play this game because I'm not a fool. But what happens is like these wives get strapped up hanging from the ceiling and below them is a tub of just something nasty and disgusting and what happens is the the ellen will say you know dustin how many well she would never say dustin because yet again i am not a fool but if i was to have a lack of a lapse of judgment and be a fool then she might say dustin what what is what how many how many how many 80s bands can you name? And I would say four. And my my other per, my my, my uh, co- opponent might say I can name five. I could say I I can name six. Then and my opponent might say, Okay, Dustin, prove it. And the clock starts. And if I name six, I win. If I don't name six, my wife falls from the ceiling and gets dropped into this puddle of disgustingness. Prove it. Is, is, is where the rubber meets the road. It's one thing to say you can do something, say you have something, say that you're capable of doing something. It's a whole nother thing when we prove it. In James chapter thir- 3, verse 13 says, if you're wise and you understand God's ways, then prove it. And the Bible is full of prove it kind, kinds of statements. And rarely does it look the way you would imagine that it did. Remember when the, when the rich man said, how do I get to heaven? And Jesus says, sell everything you got, give it all to the poor, then you can get to heaven. Prove it. 
Well, crap, I, I don't, I, I don't want to prove that. I don't know how to prove that. In, in, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 25, Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, this is how you prove it. You must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Prove it. You want to follow me, prove it. Give up the things that matter to you. Take up a cross, which means die to this, the things that you live for currently, and then you can learn how to follow Jesus by adopting the journey of, of dying to self. You want to do this, Jesus says, prove it. Later in a different part of Scripture, in Luke chapter 14, he says, A large crowd was following Jesus, and so he turned to them and said, to get the picture a whole bunch of Jesus is worth following. And so a whole bunch of people are following Jesus. And he recognizes out of the corner of his eye, a whole bunch of people are following him. And so he turns around and says, Yo, guys, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father and your mother, your wife and your children, your brothers and your sisters. Yes, even your own life you must hate. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. You want to follow me, Jesus. Hey, you guys, you, you guys that are following me currently, if you want to continue, prove it. Because what then you love, Jesus says, you have to love me so much that by comparison, you hate your mom, dad, brother, sister, even yourself. No, he's not saying hate yourself. He's saying that you love me so much that you, in comparison, there's no other love that even could possibly even scratch the surface. Jesus says, you want to follow me, then prove it. One more in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 to 30. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his own heart. So he says, so Jesus is saying here, I'm going to read a couple more verses. If you want to live a pure life, Jesus says, if you even look at a woman, it's the same sin as if you had sex with a woman. And so verse 29, he says, so if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. Verse 30, and if your hand, even your strongest hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Jesus has a way of saying, do you want this? Do you demonstrate this? Is this, is this what you're saying you want to be a part of? He says, then prove it. And, and if you're like me, you already know that you can't do any of these things. You can't prove any of these things. The prove it reality sometimes only pr pr proves that we can't do it. And friends, can I say that I think that's in God's initial design anyways. Imagine, if you will, like my son Tyler, a lot of you guys know him, he's 19 now. He's the second year in college, and so Tyler, he doesn't like to, he was, he's scared to death to drive a car, but he rides his motorcycle, so we got him a motorcycle, and he loves to ride his motorcycle. When I got my first motorcycle, Tyler was probably about four. Tyler now loves to ride a motorcycle. When he was four years old, if he would have said, Daddy, I want to ride your motorcycle, he's four, he's he's this big, right? He's that, he's not very big. He's and he said, I said, Dad, I want to ride your motorcycle. I said, Son, you think you can ride the motorcycle? He said, Dad, Daddy, I can ride this motorcycle. He's four years old. I said, Okay, then prove it. And what's going to happen is that Tyler's not even going to be, he might be able to get one foot up on the first peg, but he can't wrap his other leg around to the other side. And even if I pick him up and I sit him on the seat and get him started and his hands stretch all the way forward to the handlebars where his tummy's laying on the tank, he can't get the kickstand up. And he definitely couldn't put his feet down if it came to a stop. When I said, Tyler, you want to ride a motorcycle? Prove it. I didn't expect for him to, to knock the kickstand up, start it, and take off down the street. I would have lost my mind. But I knew when I, 
would have said to him, prove it, that he can't do that. And by saying to him, Tyler, prove that, I allow him to discover on his own that if he wants to ride that motorcycle, he's going to have to jump on the back and put his arms around dad because he can't do it on his own. And, and I think that's an important part of the wisdom, of the narrative of wisdom today. When, when, when God says, prove it, he knows that we will fall short and it's an invitation to lean into him and discover his wisdom and discover his ways that are higher than our way. I, I want to look at three things that, that we see that we can prove. It's the litmus test of the wisdom that we have in our life. It's, 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 it's where we dip. We dip if, if wisdom could be something we dip it in and we pull the little litmus test thing out and we see what's the pH of wisdom in our lives. Does it look like wisdom from us or does it look like wisdom that reflects the character of God? So three things I think we will see in godly wisdom as we look in chapter 3 of the book of James. The first thing is the humility of wisdom. I think if we were to dip for a litmus test in our lives and we pull it out to see if the pH of wisdom looks like us or like God. One of the things we'll see in godly wisdom is the humility of wisdom. In verse 13, it started out, we already read it. James chapter 3, verse 13. If you are wise and you understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. The humility that comes from wisdom. Humility is a key component and it's an outflow it's a, it's a natural occurring theme that comes out of godly wisdom. In one part of scripture, in the book of Galatians, Paul talks about what he understands to be humility in his life. And he says in Galatians 4, maybe you've heard this first, Galatians 6, I'm sorry, verse 14 and 15. Paul says, as for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified. And the world's interest in me has also died. Paul says, I only care about the, about the cross of Christ. I've given up my interest in the world. And I hope that the world doesn't see anything good in me except for the same cross of Christ. He says in verse 15, listen to this. It doesn't matter whether we have been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. Family, I wonder what Paul would say in our time. You know, the conversation between the Jews and the Gentiles about circumcision, and you're reading different parts of the scripture, is it important, and is it part of salvation, and is it, is it a part of getting to heaven, and is it a part of knowing God? That happened to be in their day. That's not a, a normal, regular conversation that we have in the church right now. You know, good, right? Aren't, aren't you thankful for that? Excuse me, circumcised on the left, without the uncircumcised on the right. No, we don't do that. But we do have things that divide us. And I wonder, family, if maybe today, if Paul might say something like, I don't care if you are wildly passionate about anti-vaccinations or if you are wildly passionate about getting vaccinated. Paul would say, I don't care if you wear a mask or if you don't wear a mask. I don't care if you are Democrat or Republican. If you are gun, have gun laws, don't have gun laws. Paul would say, none of that matters. The things that divide us can't matter compared to being transformed in Christ. Isn't that what he said in verse 16 or in verse 15? It doesn't matter whether we have been circumcised or not. What counts, what matters is 
that we have been transformed into a new creation. So Paul says, I'm not going to boast on anything else. I'm not going to create a soapbox on anything else. I'm not going to go on a social media rant on anything else. I'm not going to post divisive memes on anything else except for the fact that I used to be this and now I'm transformed by the power of Christ to become this. That's what I boast in. And when we learn how to boast just in God, the spirit of humility washes over us. And I believe that's a litmus test of wisdom. Well, what's the opposite of humility? Well, I think if we, if you were here and I said, what's the opposite of humility? It wouldn't take long for us to get to the fact that it's pride. And in James 3, the same chapter that we're reading and going back there in verse 14 through 16, James, Paul goes, James, I forget who the writer of James is, if it's Paul or James, but, but if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish, and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder of every kind. Does, does that, that's scary, right? We've, we've seen this, we've experienced this, where you see jealousy what is it? We see uh, wherever there's jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder of every kind. You know what this sounds like more than anything else to me in my experience? The church. Whenever selfish ambition takes 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 root in the pulpit or in conference rooms of the church, whenever the church is trying to grow our campus versus invest in the kingdom of God, selfish ambition surfaces, and we get jealous of what the church down the street is doing, and why, are, why do people, why do they leave here, and do they go here, and when that happens, we see disorder and evil of every kind. Remember what, James, what the book of James says? It's even demonic when we do that, but it doesn't just happen in the church. Is there disorder in your home? Is, is there dysfunction and disorder in your in, in, in your job? Maybe on your team where you work? Maybe between you and your kids? Is there is there disorder? What, like just to look back, is there dis, disorder? A sense of evilness, discouragement, oppression? Is it just there's a sense of heaviness? Can we, maybe, maybe we can start I said we, we need some godly wisdom to be injected into those 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 each of those environments in the church and in our families and in our workplaces and in between us and our kids because when we walk in godly wisdom there's a spirit of humility and that spirit of humility chases away the jealousy and the selfish ambition and when you chase away the jealousy and the selfish ambition you find that there's less disorder and evil of every kind so family may i just invite you because James chapter 1, we, this is early on, verse 5, it says, If you need wisdom, ask your generous God, and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. Is there disorder in your home, disorder in your in your mind, in your emotions, in your family, in your workplace? Well, that's a result of, of, of lack of biblical godly wisdom. Maybe there's some selfishness there, and selfishness is not on the litmus test of godly wisdom. And so James chapter 1 says, if you want order, then we need godly wisdom that's anchored in humility. And James 1.5 says, ask God for that wisdom. And it says, he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. We'll see humility of wisdom. And secondly, we'll see the purity of wisdom. In verse 17 of James 3, we read this earlier when I read the entire chapter. But the wisdom from above, it says, is first of all pure. I found that interesting that that, that the writer of James went that used the words first of all pure because there are other there's other things that it lists there. But it was intentional to say, but the wisdom of from above is first of all pure. How how important is purity? 
How important is it to mine out the impurities in our lives? Well, how important is purity? You tell me, back in Ohio, the road manager for our band, who also was our bus driver for our band, his name was Rob Bollinger. Well, he, when he wasn't on the road with us, he worked at a, a water treatment plant, right? And so at the water treatment plant, I didn't realize this. I thought that the sewage that came in, he just made sure to get it. I don't know where I thought that they put it, but I imagined that they just somehow got rid of it and it just never really came back because who wants the toilet water to be reused? And I, I found out that the toilet water with fecal matter and urine and whatever else is in there goes to a water treatment plant through several different steps and it's recycled back into our drinking water. So family, how important is purity? You tell me. What, what, What if they pretty much cleaned the water at the water treatment plant, almost got it pure at the water treatment plant and we came back and it came through our faucet pretty much clean. I don't think you and I would be okay with that. And I don't think that God's okay with that. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 1, he has something to say about the purity of the what we offer to him. What he gives thanks to us. And we call it worship. When we say we give it back to him. We give things back to him sometimes in, in our offering, in our, our financial gifts, in our worship, in our prayer. And God had something to say about being mostly or kind of pure. In Isaiah chapter 1, he's talking to his own people, right? And he says in Isaiah 1, What makes you think I want your sacrifices, says the Lord. The Lord goes on to say, I am sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, who who asked you to parade through my courts with all your ceremonies? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts, the incense of your offerings. He says, disgusts me. It's gross, the Lord says. And your celebration of the new moon and the Sabbath and your special days for fasting, they are sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. Listen to this. This is the Lord talking. They are a burden to me. I cannot stand them. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen, for your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. Wash yourselves and be clean. Family, that's some heavy junk right there. God says, I am exhausted, the Lord says, by having to bear them. And he says at one point, the new moons and the festivals, he says, stop doing them. Why are you even doing them? But in Numbers chapter 25, if you were to cross-reference this, in Numbers chapter 25, the the the, the, uh, the Israel calendar was on, it's a lunar calendar. So the new moon, we, we know it as like when the, when the moon is no, it's not, not a moon in the sky because it's completely blocked by the rotation of the earth. So when that happens, the, the, the month changed. And so they were supposed to offer specific gifts to God and it was to consecrate their month to God. And so it's a festival that God had established. And he says, when you do that, it exhausts me. I can't stand it. I'm exhausted from bearing them. It's like you and I coming to church, offering up prayers, offering up songs. Family, I wonder what God says about how we are worshiping him when we lift our hands and worship, when we lift our prayers to him. What does he see from you and I? Purity matters. Wisdom from above, the writer of James says, is first of all 
pure. I, I read this verse in Isaiah 29, verse 13. He talks about his, again, his people, the people of Israel. And he says, the Lord says, these people say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. See, I, I didn't know, actually, I had never used the word rote in a sentence. I didn't even know what it meant. And in Isaiah, God says their worship to of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. The, the rote definition, I wrote it down here, it's the act of repeating over and over, often without attention to meaning. The act of repeating over and over, often without the attention, paying attention to what it means. Family, can I just, can I ask you just to put that filter in your heart that when you come in and the first song goes, Guard your heart from the habit of routine. Guard your heart from the habit of singing songs. I don't care if you've sang the song a million times. Guard your heart. These festivals, these rituals that got established, they happened all the time. And God asked them to do them, but he asked them to somehow make sure that every time they did them, that they took the time to, to clean out their hearts and to align their attention to God so that when they did it, it wasn't just routine without paying attention to meaning. And may we never show up in God's house. May you never click on this stinking link to watch this video as a ritual or as a man-made method of doing something, paying no attention to meaning. When that happens, the purity of why we started doing it is tainted and God says, I'm exhausted by the lack of purity in our worship. Purity matters to God. We'll see that humility of wisdom, the litmus test in our lives, we'll see it when we pull it out. If we have godly wisdom, we'll see the humility of wisdom. Number two, we'll see the purity of wisdom. And number three, we'll see the otherness of wisdom. I don't use the word otherness in a, in, a, in a sentence very often. The first time I heard the word otherness, I was in Atlanta, Georgia at a, at a conference and Matt Redden was actually speaking. And Matt Rubin's a worship leader. We sing, we've sung a lot of his songs, like "Heart of Worship" and uh, "Freedom Generation" and "Blessed Be Your Name" and all that. And Matt Redmond was doing a talk about the awe-inspiring character of God, the awe and wonder of God. And one of the words he used is the otherness of God. Otherness of God, I like that word because it says, I know who I am. I know what I'm made of. I know what I, I know who, who I'm wired to be. I know all these things about me. And God is so other than me that I'm not even going to pretend like the, who I am and who I see him through, how I can comprehend him, how I think of his ways. That I, he's so other than me. I can't even begin to compare. And wisdom, likewise, is so other, you and me. It's so opposite of the ways that we are wired. And James 3 are the chapter that we're pulling from for this. In verse 17 and 18, it says, But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. We talked about that. But it's also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It's full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism, and it is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of of righteousness. Joe, Joe, do me a favor. Joe's our, our video designer. Joe, throw these words up as a bullet point on the screen. Peace loving. Gentle at all times. Willing to yield to others. Full of mercy. Always sincere. Life demonstrates the consequences of good deeds. That's a long one, sorry. Peacemaking. And an abundance of righteousness is all around you. Look at that list. Keep it up there, Joe. Does, does this, does this, if I was to ask your, your wife, your kids, your co-workers, those, your best friends, hey, does, do these words describe you? 
Are these what your life is producing on a day-to-day basis? Does this sound like what your wife would say? How This is how you treat her. Or your husband would say, this is how you always talk to me, babe. This is how your life would be, be defined if I was to put some words on a screen that could define your life and my life. Does this look like it? No, maybe, maybe sometimes, maybe every once in a while, maybe on a good day. But this is the reflection of godly wisdom. I go back to the same thing I said about disorder and dysfunction that happens when they don't have humility. If these words don't describe you, they're outflows, natural reactions to, you know, Newton or equal and opposite reaction. These things that are still on the screen, hopefully, Joe, these things are a reflection, a natural and equal or opposite reaction to godly wisdom because this is what godly wisdom produces. Do you want your life to look like these words? Do you want to be known as these things? you want to be known as being peace-loving, gentle, willing to yield to others, to give other people their way instead of fighting for your own way, to be full of mercy? That your life, instead of the consequences and the heaviness of your poor choices that constantly seem to get in your way and those consequences rear their ugly head and you're paying the price for your poor, cho- your poor choices, God's word says uh, that there's, there, there's, uh, you're full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds, that your life is producing fruit that has the consequence of good deeds, peacemaking. And it's just righteousness all around you because verse 18 says, and peacemakers, they plant seeds of peace and they reap a harvest of righteousness. You can take them down, Joe. Remember the illustration with Tyler on the motorcycle. If those words don't sound like you always, if humility isn't your go-to response, if you find if you find that you're just constantly having a hard time eradicating your desires, and you 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 would be like that water treatment plant that's mostly pure, kind of pure. You wouldn't want to drink from the faucet of your life if you were God. Maybe that could define you. Remember the Tyler illustration. I, I I know if I want Tyler to get on the motorcycle and go with me, and I say he says he wants to drive, and I say okay, prove it, family. I know he can't, and I'm not asking him to prove it so that I can point my finger at him and say you you can't. You're not good enough. No, no. Once he realizes that he can't, then I get the luxury as his daddy to put my hand down and say, let's go, I got you. And he jumps on the back and he wraps his little four-year-old hands around me and we go cruise and he's with me. He can't, but I can. And family, those words, humility, living a life that's other than, 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 than us, it reflects God and the cross of Christ. We can't. Oh, but he can. And so I remember in James chapter one, verse five, if he, if, and family, if you lack these things, remember, if you lack these things, these reflections of wisdom, it's not because the father doesn't want that you to have them. He does, because if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. So Joe, put this on the screen. If you need blank, put a blank there. If you need blank, and then finish the verse, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. Maybe out of that list, you need patience. You need mercy. You need humility. You need purity. You need to be a person that sows seeds of peacemaking, 
Maybe you have some phone calls you need to make and some texts you need to send that says, not that you will keep peace. That doesn't say crap about keeping peace. That's easy. Or at least easier than making peace. Making peace says, there's not peace there. I'm going to go make some. Maybe you have some phone calls you need to make to make some peace. Then you can keep it. But first, you got to make it. Do you need blank James 1.5 says, and ask your God who's generous and he wants to give it to you. He won't rebuke you or look down on you for asking. He knows you can't do it alone and he's just wanting you to ask so that he can pick you up and put you on the back and take you through the journey of knowing godly, biblical wisdom. So ask. Let's pray. God, I pray for everyone watching, everyone that, that maybe listened over a, a podcast God, I ask you that, that, that now that the, the, the first step is just surrendering that we can't. It's that it's what Tyler would have felt at four years old, frustratingly trying to get over his, throw his le- little tiny legs over the bike and figure out how to reach the brake and touch the ground. And, this is, and ultimately, God, I would be just watching him, longing for him to stop so that I could just do it for him. And in the same way, God, may we just stop. And in fact, you even said that in Isaiah, you, you told your people, will you stop? He said, I'm exhausted. I'm sick of watching you do it, thinking it's good enough and and it's not. Stop. Stop selling yourself short, you told your people. Stop pretending like what you're giving is the fullness of what I'm asking for. You said, stop. And in the same way, I'm saying to our church family, stop. Just stop. And let's lean into what God is asking us to do. Let's lean into a wisdom that reflects his character that's other than us, that's full of humility, that's full of mercy. And we can't do that. You want, do you want biblical wisdom? Prove it. And when you say prove it, you're proving that we can. So we will, choose, we will prove to ourselves that we need you. We need you. So thank you for proving to us and giving us the space to say it's okay that we can't. And then you invite us into, once we come to that realization, you invite us in to say, but you can, Father. And you want to in so many lives in our church, so many families in our church. God, you want evil, dysfunction, disorder. That's, that's the product of selfishness. It's the product of jealousy and selfish ambition. So there are some homes and some workplaces, some families, some relationships between moms and daughters and fathers and sons. And there's some relationships that need godly wisdom to chase away that dysfunction and that disorder. So there's some dads that need to take a deep dose of humility. There's some moms that need to take a gigantic gulp of mercy. And that would reflect godly wisdom that will produce, your word says, righteousness all around us. Oh, that our kids and our spouses, we look at them and we'd see that they are the, they are the harvest of the seeds of just peace and mercy and purity and goodness that we planted and our family's fruits is a harvest of righteousness all around us. Thank you for that promise. We believe it and we trust it in Jesus name. And from right where you are, everybody said, amen. Thanks for joining us this week on Life with Impact. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Life with Impact. And to watch the full virtual service, make sure to check us out on YouTube at Impact CC. Have a great week.